So that's our challenge. Keep cows healthy, give them the inputs of nutrition management, so on that they need um, to set them up for success for, for repro. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds in the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, profitable dairy solutions. From essential vitamins like Hi-D and Victus Transition to next generation products like Biofix, our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the dairy industry. Visit dsm.com to learn more about our newest solutions. So welcome everybody to this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Gail Carpenter and I'm the State Dairy Extension Specialist for Iowa State University. I'm joined today by Dr. Stephen LeBlanc from the University of Wealth. Stephen is a professor in the Department of Population Medicine at the Ontario Veterinary College, and he's the director of Dairy at Guelph, the Center for Dairy Research and Innovation at the University of Guelph. He received a BSc in Agriculture and Animal Science from McGill University in 1992 and a DVM in 1997 and a DVSC in 2001 from the University of Guelph. After five years of private veterinary practice, he joined the faculty at the University of Guelph where he teaches veterinary students and provides clinical farm service. He is a past president of the Dairy Cattle Reproduction Council and served six years as a section and senior editor for the Journal of Dairy Science. He is a director of the American Dairy Science Association. His research focuses on dairy cow metabolic and reproductive health and management, precision technologies, and antimicrobial stewardship. With graduate students and collaborators, this work has resulted in over 175 peer-reviewed papers, and he has given invited talks in 20 countries. Thank you for joining us today, Stephen. It's great. We're glad to have you here. Thanks, Gail. Glad to be with you. So I kind of want to get into a a topic today that I find. So I I coach the Dairy Challenge team here, right? And a lot of times we have a tendency to go through our different different units. And so we have our reproduction unit and our nutrition unit and our facilities unit and all this. And um, maybe maybe other teachers teach the same way. I don't know. Um, but I get a little bit frustrated sometimes with teaching, especially senior students who are kind of at the stage where they're, they're putting everything together, right? They're putting together a whole package. Um, and each of those things, each of, each of our different units, we kind of tend to treat them like silos, but in reality on farm, everything kind of interacts with each other, right? You can't really just say repro is a thing on its own and mastitis is a thing on its own. Like everything kind of blends together, Right. So something I want to get your perspective on a little bit um, is this interaction between reproduction and transition. So a lot of times when I'm working with a farm, looking at farm records or, or doing whatever else and, and focusing on, um, you know, this farm has a low preg rate um, or isn't meeting their goals in preg rate. I think a lot of times the first place that I go, and maybe this is my bias because I'm a nutritionist and, and really enjoy the transition period. But a lot of times I go, the first place I go 
when I'm looking at repro issues on a farm is that transition period. Do you think that's real? Do you think how much, how many reproductive problems on farm do you think tie back to a poor transition? Uh, probably a lot. So, you, you know, you mm -hmm. talked about fourth year students, you know, still being at the stage of putting things together. Um, certainly fourth year vet students are, are the same way as fourth year Aggie students. And, and I would I would say that actually um, even for professionals, whether they're university professors or professionals out in the field, um, I speak, I think we spend the rest of our professional lives trying to put things together. Um, it's it's a never ending process. But, yeah, I, I would agree with you that um, transition cow health is I mean, it. it it's almost like a cliche, but it's absolutely the the foundation of good, I mean, of everything, but in particular, reproductive performance. So, you know, if you think back, let's say even 20 years ago, um, I used to, you know, somewhat jokingly do talks for farmers and, and other professionals about that the number one reproductive disease of dairy cattle was semen deficiency um, in, in that, you know, we just weren't necessarily being very efficient about getting semen into cows and between synchronization programs for timed AI and or activity monitors um, and or better facilities that allow for estrus expression um, some combination of all those three things there's lots of herds still have some miles to make there but but big picture as an industry we've come a long way there and so Efficiently getting cows inseminated is way better than it used to be, and it's totally within our grasp to 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 take as much control of that as you need to to achieve good success. And so, then the driver becomes what some people refer to not as insemination management, but actual fertility management. And and so making yards on conception risk or probability of pregnancy or you know the success of of each insemination, uh, that's much harder. Um, and there's a long list of stuff that goes into that. But practically, I, I would agree with you that if a farm isn't doing well with, you know, ha having achieved some efficiency in getting semen into cows and back into cows in a timely way, um, if if they've still got some ways to go on pregnancy per AI, um, setting cows up for success for that, especially at first surface, but but not only, uh, has a lot to do with, with the transition period. Um, I, I would even, I'll, I'll, I'll go one, one more quick mile, and that's one of my favorite data sets um, to make that point is the work that Jose Santos from Florida uh, published about a dozen years ago. But long story short, they'd done a whole bunch of synchronized breeding trials, but along the way, using nearly 6,000 cows from high-producing, big, intensively managed herds in California, they were all about, you know, this sink versus that sink or sink versus not sink and so on. But along the way, they they kept really careful track of transition cow health for all these cows. And the, the, the couple big take-homes for me out of that were, yeah, any and just about every transition cow problem, metritis, mastitis, lameness, ketosis, Pulled down pregnancy at first insemination, prize. Um, but the the two things that I thought were really compelling messages were the sobering part was um, only just over half of cows made it through the transition period without experiencing at least one 
issue condition these if you were really keeping careful track. So that that's the downer. But but the real upside is even in these really high producing herd um, cows, big herds, intensive management, the whole deal. Pregnancy at first AI, and th this was before you know Dapolovsink or sort of those Cadillac fertility programs. Um, pregnancy at first AI in these cows was over fifty percent. So all of that to say that I think the take home is. If we keep cows healthy, number one, then they will be high producing. But even if they're high producing, um, the fertility has has not left um, that, you know, so, so that's our challenge. Keep cows healthy, give them the inputs of nutrition management, so on that they need um, to set them up for success for, for repro. Yeah. So what is the best predictor then of... Uh transition and reproductive success so is it count of events is it any is it metritis is it you know any incidence of metritis is it milk fever what is the best predictor in your opinion or not opinion but yeah well yeah i'll, I'll do my best to answer from data so interestingly because i'll come at that from two um two angles it, any clinical disease especially uterine disease mostly meaning metritis also cows that don't clean, but, but, but any, any clinical disease, a DA, lameness, mastitis, et cetera, is, is going to be somewhat too fairly bad for that affected cow. Not, not, you know, fatal for fertility, but, but meaningfully noticeably bad for that cow. So then it's a question of how prevalent are these things in a herd. You know, having a DA, very bad. Hopefully that's only 1% or 2% of your cows. So as a herd level thing, hopefully not a really big deal. Um, metritis, interest, I mean, that's a whole other, we could spend a whole other podcast just on that. But um, treated metritis does still have an impact on fertility, although perhaps not terrible but but for the affected individual but again depending on the herd and so on you're going to be probably 10 to even 20 percent of cows affected so um, that starts to become important for the, the herd and then if we go out to something like ketosis where the effect for an individual cow is a little more equivocal um but it tends to be quite a high prevalence condition. 20, 30, 40% of cows will experience ketosis. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so at least potentially that, that could start to become, uh, could become a meaningful thing at the herd level. So I guess, so the first big thing is, yeah, clinical or even subclinical disease, any and all of the biggies that, that I've mentioned, um, are going to be at least worth looking at in a herd. Do, do a bit of, well, good record keeping and or some testing to see where the herd's at to make that herd specific decision. Like, is this a probably a meaningful deal for us? Is this the next or a next thing for a given herd to spend time and money on? Um, for instance, just, just to finish that thought, like there's tons of papers that show the cows that have mastitis before, near, or after insemination are less likely to get pregnant. But there's some really good work out of the UK from a few years ago that 
that took that and put it in a much bigger context of a whole bunch of other variables. And yeah, it, it the, the, the statistical associations are absolutely there. But if you put it in context of the bigger picture variables about insemination rate, conception risk, and, and some other much bigger things, the amount of variation in a herd's pregnancy rate that's explained by mastitis is actually really small. So does it matter to the cow? Yes. Does it matter to the herd? Maybe, but maybe not. So tracking of disease, a little bit of proactive looking for what are the opportunities, what are the bottlenecks on our herd, because they aren't, it's not one size fits all. The other big one, though, that is, you know, what's old is new again, um, is is good old body condition score. So, I mean, zero points for novelty, but there, there's actually in the last few years been some really compelling data sets to show that cows that don't lose much condition in the weeks after calving um, or even gain condition. I mean, we used to think, well, those are lazy cows, so to speak, you know, yeah, that's nice for them, but they're probably not making much milk. Well, yeah, to, to be continued on that, but not necessarily. And and the part that's really compelling that we haven't really had good data on up until now is cows that maintain their body condition can have outstanding fertility. Now, some of that loops back to this angle of, well, you know, who maintains their body condition? Well, there's a genetic piece to it for sure, but the flip side is if the cow goes lame, if the cow has a DA, if the cow has metritis, she's much, you know, chicken and egg. But at the end of the day, she's much more likely to be a cow who loses and maybe loses quite a bit of body condition from calving till, you know, one to two months postpartum. But but again, that's easy to look at. Um and and sometimes we have better data on that than we necessarily do on really thorough disease recording. So I, again, I think that's one that it is simple, but but actually pretty compelling. And it seems from a few data sets from the U.S. and and elsewhere that um, maybe we can really have it all. I mean, healthy cows don't lose a lot of condition. Cows that don't lose a lot of condition probably stay healthy. Um, but we looks like we don't necessarily have to give up on production either. And and I think one of the big things that that's changed there is having cows calve in leaner conditions. So I, aiming for cows calving around a body score of three, three and a quarter. Um, I personally wouldn't aim lower than that because if you miss, you're, you're really going to be offside. But, you know, again, well, I'm old enough. I won't make assumptions about you, but I'm old enough to remember when we thought it was a good, you know, we just, well, losing body condition was inevitable. And so we better start a little higher knowing that the cow's going to lose and has to lose. Well, that, that's maybe changed a little bit, right? Like um, calving them in closer to a three and not a 375 um, looks to be a really good strategy. Does that tie in? I've been hearing a lot more um, in general lately about this idea of resilience. Is that what this ties into? Just cows that cows that stay healthy 
keep milking your low problem cows? Yeah, that, that's a piece of it. I mean, call it resilience. There's there's a really big research um, project in the in Europe that's trying to identify resilient cows. Some of my colleagues here at Guelph are part of leading a very multi-country, multi-university thing that's looking at the genetics of that called the Resilient Dairy Genome. They have a website you can look it up, but but yeah, they're so they're looking for all kinds of stuff from, um, you know, disease resistance to heat stress resistance to, um, I mean, ultimately cows that are more, call them feed efficient, call them you know more carbon neutral cows in the sense that they just convert resources in a more efficient way. But yeah, yes to all of that. I mean, genetics is clearly a piece of that puzzle. Um, my bias is that a lot of that is, is still down to, to management, you know, giving cows the conditions to thrive. But yeah, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're, we're kind of mixing up all our, our favorite metaphors here from resilience to, um, you know, to, uh, the, the metabolic athlete. But I, I kind of like that one in the sense that, you know, when, when we're asking a lot of cows, which we are, make a lot of milk, stay healthy, get pregnant. Um, well, you got, you got to support them to a commensurate level. So, you know, some people use the race car analogy, right? If you're driving a, a race car, well, you don't just put any tires on it or any oil in it or any driver in it. You know, you have to have all those pieces for that, that thing to work well. Whether you like that analogy or not, I think it's, it's got something to say about dairy cows that, yeah, if, if we're going to ask cows to, you know, produce hundred pounds of milk a day and get pregnant three months after they, they last calved, um, their nutrition and management and everything has to just be right up at the top of the game. Yeah. I, uh, I also enjoy chirping geneticists a little bit sometimes, um, <laughs> and saying what we do is, is more important. Of course, I think, like I said earlier, it's all, it's all important, right? I think that it's, you're doing yourself a favor on the management side. If you're managing cows with a good genetic base, like it's a lot easier to manage, those those high achieving resilient cows versus managing cows with poor genetics. So, as much as I also like to to show my biases and, and maybe tease geneticists a little bit, it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's all important, right? Absolutely, yep. And again, as it's it's it like ratchets forward, right? As as we do better and better managing, well, then the, the notion that we might be actually approaching genetic potential for for some traits um becomes more meaningful and so all the more reason to yeah keep selecting and select better so that we keep raising the bar raising the ceiling and then looping back to and keep raising the management game to make sure we're chasing um or approaching that genetic potential yeah we have a really fast moving industry that's for sure i i and i like you said i'm i'm not quite as old as you are um i think i was still in high school when you were um, finishing up. No, I hadn't even gotten to high school yet. Sorry, when you were finishing up um, vet school. But um, not to not to say anybody's older or younger. Um, but even in the time that I've been in my career, I feel like we've just seen leaps and bounds when it comes to pregnancy rate. Right? Like, it, what's the what's the new stretch goal um, for preg rate? Because I I wrote an article when I was not too long after I finished my PhD about farms that were, you know, shooting for 30% preg rate. And that was like this big stretch goal at the time. And now like six years later, I feel like 
I see a lot more farms that are achieving that. So what's the new stretch goal that that farms are shooting for 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 preg rate and repro benchmarks? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's funny. There was a, an economic and modeling exercise that was done by two professors um, at, in at Penn, um, Jim Ferguson, Dave Galligan, back in it was published like in the in a conference mm. proceedings in the late '90s, and they said. Uh, basically, it looks like the economic optimum 21-day preg rate would be around 35%. Um, at the time, the her the uh, you know population average was like 14, and that that was just unheard of. I mean, that was like some kind of yeah. central <laughs> thing. Was like, well, that's a nice idea, but obviously that's unattainable. But you know, let's just try to move in that direction. Well, and and you know, there was quite a long lag there through the 90s and two, early 2000s where at the population level, preg rates really weren't. I mean, they yeah, they were moving, but boy, you had to look hard to see it. And, and I think for a bunch of reasons, partially more use of even better so-called fertility sync timed AI programs. That's absolutely an important tool in the toolkit. Activity monitors to to be more efficient about getting semen into cows. And, and then, you know, the stuff we talked about as well um, in, in terms of management from nutrition and how we manage transition cows and so on. And credit where it's due, um, you know, the genetics of fertility is such that the the heritability is really low, but as geneticists would point out, that doesn't mean we can't make progress. And indeed, there's really good evidence now that, in fact, you know, we, the royal we of the industry, have made progress on the genetics of fertility since about 2010, let's say. Um. So anyway, for all those reasons, I think we're at the point. I mean, clearly, there's herds now that are not just touching but maintaining. Um, 21 day preg rates for for real, you know, with with legitimate data, um, even in large herds, especially in large herds um, that are up around that 35% mark. Um, again, I think, you know, once herds are passing 25% into the high 20s, I, I do think it's fair to say you want to have a a sharp pencil on an adult conversation about you're you're getting into the flatter part of the return curve. So you got to be a little more thoughtful about, you know, what will it take for us to go up another two or three or four points? Um, but yeah, that's, you know, the stretch goal, it probably is in that 35% range. Now, can, can it go even higher? Uh, I, I, to be honest, I, I think we're really getting into the flat part of the curve. Uh, but, you know, let's see. There, there's still a lot of birds who have some miles to go to, to go from, you know, 20 to 25, let's say, and, and maybe from 25 to 30 and we can talk after that, but um, yeah, it, it's, it, it, it's an exciting because for the longest time, um, you know, it seemed like, yeah, we're doing all this stuff and repro, but yeah, shoot, the <laughs> population metrics aren't looking like we're making much difference here, but I, I think we've really broken that, that log jam in the last you know, 10 15 yeah. years. So do you think that 35% is still an economic optimum? Because it seems to me that since the 90s, we've come a long way just in terms of our capabilities. And we have a better understanding of these technologies and sensor technologies. And we really nailed down those synchronization protocols and 
it seems that there's been a lot of leaps and bounds made. So do you still think that that research that shows 35% is fitting today? Yes. Uh, again, I, I would defer to, you know, the, the people who are really generating those models and, and you know, may need to, to re, uh, you know, I'd test some new inputs to sort of see, even just from a modeling and math standpoint, um, if in fact those curves shift. But I, th I think the answer is, yeah, but based on the data available so far, um, something like that 35% 21-day preg rate is, is looking like, it, given today's realistic inputs, even for elite herds, somewhere up around that zone is probably where you're, it's not, maybe not the, the maximum, but based on today's inputs would be the optimum looks like. I mean, let me put it this way. If I was working with a herd that was up at that zone, frankly, I'd be saying, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. And let's go talk about calves or mastitis or there's a different you know, bond like on that yeah 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 almost certainly yeah yeah so i want to back up to a couple comments you made earlier um first of all when we were talking about those predictors you specifically mentioned treat treated metritis um and i see a lot of on you know farms i i've been on and working with some of our, our vets in our vet school here um, there's been a shift to, at least in my perspective, doing less treatment of nitritis and being a little bit more hands-off with those cows. Um, you know, maybe if you're, if more interventions might be causing more problems, is that something that's accurate in your perspective? What, what do you recommend to producers for nitritis treatment? Yeah. So, so, um, I've got uh, a postdoc looking at it at some work right now to um, see if we can do a little bit better screening for early detection, partially based on sensors and data, partially based on looking at cows. Um, we're comparing non-antibiotic treatment, so an NSAID treatment of cows with metritis to uh, traditional antibiotic treatment. So, you know, stay tuned. That can be next year's podcast when we have some results. But I think um, credit in this area really goes to a group of uh, researchers, grad students, and faculty at University of Florida. Um, so, Clibs Galvao, uh, Jose Santos, Ricardo Chappelle, uh, Rafael Bissonato, and, and a, a number of their grad students over the last several years. Uh, they've done, well, one really large study of metritis treatment that um, notably had a negative control group in it. So, they tried to novel therapy that really didn't work at all so we'll put that aside but they one of the things that was almost unique was they had a negative control group and an antibiotic treated group and they've they've really mined that um for some very cool uh, very informative analyses and so for me some of the highlights coming out of that body of work would uh, are that although there was some real skepticism about the benefit of treating cows with metritis because some earlier studies had showed, frankly, pretty small marginal gains from, you know, using a fair bit of, of antibiotic. But those earlier studies hadn't really followed the cows through to look at culling and milk and repro. They were kind of just, you know, did she get better in, in the short run? And that was kind of equivocal. 
So in these more recent studies, yeah, the, the, the clinical endpoints after, you know, a week after treatment are about the same, that the, the, the marginal gain is there, but it's not huge. But to make a long story short, what they've showed is that, um, yes, on, on balance, if you had a cow with metritis, meaning fetid discharge between, you know, three and 10 days postpartum, um, on average, they are worth treating with antibiotics because the untreated ones um, essentially have greater culling and less pregnancy. So you're, so uh, approximately 10 percentage points greater culling through lactation. So like 40% instead of 30% and 10 percentage points less cumulative pregnancy. So 60% instead of 70% of cows that wind up pregnant and, and they're getting, it's not just at the end, you know, they're, they're getting pregnant. The treated ones are getting pregnant sooner along the way. So, so the, just forget about it, ignore it. Don't bother. Don't treat. Um, no, but the other part that they did in one of their additional analyses that I think is is really setting us up for where this is going to go next, we can get a little more refined about this. So they looked at a whole bunch of additional blood analyses and cow parameters. And, and at the end of the day, kind of two stand out. One and one is really low-hanging fruit. And that's just how many days in milk is the cow at diagnosis? Later is less bad. In fact, untreated cows with metritis, but where the metritis wasn't onset till, well, nine days in milk or later, which was actually about 30% of the cases in their study, those cows actually had equally good milk and repro outcomes um, to healthy cows. So in other words, that, that needs to be confirmed, <clears throat> but their candidates... To, to be untreated. Now, you know, stay tuned. I'm not necessarily saying that's to go implement in the fresh pen tomorrow, but but it sure looks like that's something that would help us. They also found that uh, cow's blood haptoglobin level at diagnosis was had predictive values. Yes. Surprise, surprise. If yeah. it was lower, you know, surprise, surprise, the case was less bad. Haptoglobin being, for those who don't know, an, inflam an inflammation marker. Yeah. Right. And so it totally makes sense. The trouble is we don't have the little haptometer the way we do for BHB or, or whatever. That's not a crazy idea to think that one could be made, but it, you know, not, not today. And so that's maybe, maybe for down the track. So again, all I have to say, um, today's state of the art is that on average, yes, we, we probably should be treating cows with arthritis, but in the not too distant future, we're going to be able to be more selective into cows that call them resilient or whatever you want to call them, but um, could safely be left alone because they're kind of on the right side of probabilities. Um, and, you know, back to your original thing, could we over-treat or over-diagnose? Uh, yes. Um, you know, I think what, what people backed away from somewhat is the lock up every single fresh cow every day for 10 days, take her temperature, reach in her, you know, really go hunting for uh, charge. 
we don't have good trials to sort of say, you know, if you do all of that, is that too much? I think so. But, but where do I back it down to and still find that sweet spot of treating those who need it and leaving alone those who can be safely left alone? I, I think we're still finding our way uh, through that. Well, yeah, because if you're, you know, you say cows that are diagnosed at later days in milk have a better outcomes, but if you're just not catching them until later days in milk, exactly. then, that might, then that's going to be an issue, right? So is that where sensors come in? Um, I hope so. I, I mean, um, Ricardo Chabelle has some, some really good work, um, that he's published recently that, and, and the, you know, there's some work from Cornell, um, from, um, Matias uh, Stangafaro and, and Julio Giordano from a number of years ago that, yeah, there are detectable differences in activity and rumination of cows that precedes metritis and a bunch of other diseases. Um, tough, so clear in hindsight, right. less clear in real time, day to day, if I'm trying to work the fresh pen right here, right now. Um, but then, uh, Ricardo Chabelle's, um, analyses also looked n not only at, you know, could you help, could you use some sensor-based data to identify cows either in addition to, or even instead of traditional herdsman monitoring and the answer there was you, you could maybe get as good a, as the presumably skilled herdsman so perhaps there's an opportunity to save labor it wasn't better um and, and it it didn't augment it, it augmented a little but not a huge amount so i think i think there's still work to be done there M my personal um wish or bias is that we're not going to take humans out of the equation with data and sensors, but maybe we can sort and lock up fewer cows and, and have a shorter list for our precious herds people to deal with. So we don't burn them out and, and we can get by with fewer of them because there are fewer of them. Um, and then the other, the other piece from um, Ricardo Chappelle's work is that they also found that you could, from from metritis forward, you could use some of the same data to predict or, or yeah, predict, identify cows that were or weren't likely to respond well to antibiotic therapy. Now, again, I, you know, I don't think that's at the point of saying, you know, well, given X, Y, Z criterion, sorry, we're going to just, you know, euthanize you or cull you on the spot. <laughs> um, I, I don't, I don't think they're saying that, but again you can pick up or, or predict differences in how this is going to go. And so I think that, at, you know, in the future, that kind of, uh, whether we had modified treatment approaches for those cows or, uh, or, or endpoints for those cows, I think that that whole idea of refinement, just getting a little smarter, uh, more selective, that's absolutely where we're going, especially with metritis probably with mastitis as well, probably with lameness as well. Uh, yeah. So it's not necessarily we're trying to use less labor. We're just trying to be smarter with the labor that we have. Well, I think at the end of the day, it will be somewhat less labor. But but yeah, I would say um, it's better for the cow and for the person not to have to lock up, you know, the entire fresh pen on a large dairy 
every single day or at least every cow every day and, and just do that really um, highly repetitive, not super efficient kind of process. I think that's what a lot of herds are already starting to move away from and we're going to get a lot smarter about how to really do that well. Yeah, I think there's some human nature that says if, you know, if checking fresh cows is good, then then spending an hour doing it with them, like, is bet Like, if we're going to do it a little bit, we're just going to go out all out and do it all the way. And if we're not going to do it, we're not going to do it at all. And maybe there's a Goldilocks example in there somewhere. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Not too much, not too little. Yeah. So you also talked a little bit and uh, I don't want to, we're getting close to a time that we might have to wrap up, but um I do want to touch back to something that you mentioned earlier about um, these resilient cows that have higher milk yield. Um, so is it true that cows that are high producing cows are going to be less fertile or is this something, how do you, how do you, there's not a clear relationship there. Uh, yeah. In a word, no. Oh. Uh, or <laughs> in two words, not necessarily. That's, that's maybe a, a little more subtle answer. Um, not necessarily. So again, um, yeah, there, we can illustrate that at a certain point there can be and is some physiologic antagonism between the metabolic demands of a high level of lactation and the, the metabolic demands of, of fertility. You know, so the classic work from Wisconsin as cows, well, they have to eat first to milk. So as they eat more milk, more have to digest more, their metabolic rate goes up as a byproduct. Every time they pump a liter of blood through their liver, steroids get broken down. And so even though their ovaries are working just fine, the cow ends up experiencing lower levels of estrogen pumping through her veins. Therefore, she's, you know, going to show a less intense heat, maybe not show a heat. Um, she's going to experience less progesterone pumping through her veins. So she's at greater risk of having twins. Um, that's a risk factor for going cystic over bearing condition, which you know maybe isn't a big deal, but the same thing. So yeah, it, it, can there be, is there some antagonism? Yes, but um, not necessarily. I mean, again, if you, you know, probably, I mean, this is anecdotal, but I think it tells a story, you know, whether you're a farmer Think about yourself. Think about a successful farmer you admire. If you're an advisor, think about your best, most successful clients. Um, the elite tend to have it all. That that those herds are both high producing and high preg rate herds. Um, it's, in fact, I would argue it's somewhat difficult to have one without the other. Um, you know, preconditions for both are the same, and in fact, health underlies both. I mean, if we're not getting transition right you're not getting milk or fertility. If we are getting transition right, you have every reason to think you you can and should and will have both. I mean, uh, in fact, at the herd level, there's a number of nice analyses that illustrate just that, that the, the, the correlation is positive. At, at, you know, higher producing herds on average actually have better preg rates. Uh, at the cow level, Yes, you, you can find data that kind of cut both ways. Um, but even when you can find some uh, negative correlations, they tend to be of a pretty small magnitude. So for me, the bottom line is it's about what we talked about at the beginning. If we do a good job of supporting the metabolic nutritional management needs of these cows, 
we we can have it all you know call i call it the triple crown or the trifecta but health um fertility and production and yeah is that easy no um it, is it possible absolutely um and, and it, it is not inherently impossible it's inherently difficult but it's not inherently impossible at all very good well i think uh definitely as an industry we still have we've come a long way it's going to be really exciting to see uh in the not too not too distant future how things are going to continue to evolve so one of the things that i like talking to my students about is you know things that i'm not that far into my career but things have changed a lot since i was in their seats and i think things are going to keep evolving rapidly while i continue through my career and certainly the next generation is going to be it's going to be really important to to stay on top of these things because things just they move so fast in today's world it is time to our famous three the dairy podcast show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like ab vista feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function icc animal nutrition adding value to nutrition excellent by protecta a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia it's uncomplicated excellence when it comes to raising healthy animals you need more than the right solutions you need the right partner who brings decades of industry expertise and a global team to put that knowledge to work for the advancement of your operation at fibro animal health corporation we are proud to work with you as your trusted partner so I'm going to wrap up. We have three questions that we ask every guest. Uh, and the first question is, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Uh, so I think my favorite dairy resource book is uh, Large Dairy Herd Management textbook. I, think that um, one. I can remember reading the, I guess it was the first edition, the, the early 90s edition of that, you know, when I was in um, in vet school and so on. And it's, it's, yeah, it's the white one with blue. Yeah. And then obviously there's a new edition that, that came out a few years ago that's available through, uh, through ADSA. I mean, uh, that for me is just a gold mine of, it's probably the, the best one-stop shopping place for both the underlying science in a, in a digestible format, but also the, the practical applications. And, and it's, you know, it really is comprehensive from the big picture of, you know, the environmental impact of dairying to calves, to health, to fertility, to nutrition. So, uh, yeah, so that's probably my chart topper. Yeah. And that one, you can download the PDF from the ADSA website and it's pretty cheap if I remember right. Correct. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a bargain. Yeah. And I still, I mean, I know I just said how far the industry has come, but that, that nineties book that I have on the shelf there, that's still it's got a lot of really good basic information in it. And I, I still lean on that one too, not just the new one, but. Um, okay. So what is your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture then? So one, uh, one that I'll plug that I read last year, maybe, um, is a, a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, it was published a few years ago by a Nobel Prize winning psychologist slash behavioral economist named Daniel Kahneman. Um, and I, I kind of stumbled onto it. Um, it's, I, I guess you could say it's mostly a book about psychology, how, how humans think that's, I mean, that's the, the essence of, of the book and this thinking fast and slow is, is sort of the, the gist of it. But I, I found it really fascinating. Um, and, and 
uh, also, you know, provided a lot of insights into uh, how, you know, how other people think. I think it, it helps with empathy as well to sort of really g- give people, you know, readers an insight, not into your own, only into your own thought processes, but into how other people think about process, make decisions. So whether you're trying to be an advisor or an influencer or just a... <laughs> just a good human uh that was uh I, I found that one it was enjoyable to read and and uh you know lots of things that made you go hmm, yeah that's really interesting i think that one is that's one that i wanted to read for a while and haven't picked it up quite yet so i'll have to move that higher up on my want to read list yep all right so our last question is in your opinion what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those that are not listening um I mean, you know, I think it's for sure as veterinarians, but but as other advisors as well, we we're we feel the need to be experts, and 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 that is a need. I mean, we're supposed to be bringing knowledge and skills to the table, whether you're a vet or a nutritionist or a repro advisor or whatever you are. Um, so yeah, you can't just just be a nice person. You you got to have the goods. But I think what really differentiates those who are most successful um is is listening and and sometimes you know as as somebody who's supposed to be coming in as a person with answers we're not always very good at that and and so either you end up kind of barking up the wrong tree you know you're you're harping on what you want to harp on but if that's not the clients the producers the owners goals well you you could be right but not relevant um or, or in that in a sense means not right in the sense it's not what's not right for right here right now um kind of thing so so yeah i I think um you know ask a lot of questions some many people are decent at that but actually listen (laughs) as opposed to just be thinking of what's the next question or what's my you know reply gonna be like actually taking in you know hearing what people are saying about what's bothering them what their goals are what they're trying to accomplish and so on because then you can you know make some goals together and and ultimately you'll you'll make more mileage that way and and i think both sides end up feeling better about the interaction of the relationship as well yeah yeah all right so before i let you go uh, where can people find more information about the work that you're doing? Yep. So we've uh, we've got a, a website called, which is just dairyatguelph.ca, um, where we post a lot of uh, links and, and notifications about not just my group's work, but um, our big network of people across the University of Guelph. Uh, follow us on Twitter, dairyatguelph.ca. Um, and I have a Twitter for myself as well, which is mostly to do with professional stuff coming out of our research group that's dairy research one uh, number one at the end all right well thank you Stephen. it was great to have a chance to talk with you again today and, and catch up and uh looking forward to this podcast coming out i think we, we touched on some pretty interesting stuff thanks gail enjoy talking with you take care all right you too